You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gents, to yet another exciting edition of the Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. And today we have a wonderful show lined up for you today. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. We're going to talk about germ theory versus terrain theory. We're going to talk about some of his research into COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, or the lack thereof. And we're also going to talk about his uh, thoughts on authentic medicine and the body's ability to heal itself naturally when given the proper environment. And we're really going to tip some sacred cows here and go against the prevailing narrative of COVID and also a lot of prevailing health narratives when it comes to Western medicine, allopathic medicine, which is something that's definitely uh, right up my alley. So I want to invite you, as I always do at the beginning of the program, to subscribe to us over here at livefreenow.show. As we'll talk about briefly, Dr. Kaufman is quite the censored guy, which for me really indicates that there's something to what he has to say. Um, but having him on as an interview and a lot of the other content that we cover is definitely stuff that big tech and big government and big pharma do not like. So I want to invite you to subscribe to our email newsletter over at livefreenow.show and be sure you subscribe to the RSS feed to keep in touch with us. We also ha- we're also on library if you want to go to go to search John Bush Live Free Now. So keep in touch with us because we're going to continue to bring about controversial material and really what passes for controversial these days seems to be like what's natural and what used to be the way things were back in the day. And now the world's all topsy turvy. So we want to bring it back to the old school way of doing things, which is like letting the body heal itself, vitamins and minerals, plant medicine, not all this crazy stuff going on, but Anyway, I digress. Livefreenow.show. And I want to plug our sponsor real quick, uh, Brave Botanicals, mybravebotanicals.com. We just started carrying Delta 8 THC, which is legally legal federally. Uh, it's legal for me to ship to 39 states, not the 11, most of which have legal, legal weed. But uh, it's Delta 8 THC. It's not as strong as Delta 9 THC. It's more strong than CBD. Helps with pain, relaxation, anxiety, taking the edge off. Feels great. You can head over to mybravebotanicals.com, mybravebotanicals.com. And, of course, click on CBD slash THC. And there they are for you, these awesome vape cartridges. You won't be disappointed. They've been selling like crazy. It's all natural plant medicine that the government doesn't want you to try, but we have it here for you at mybravebotanicals.com. All right. I want to thank everyone that's tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, and especially thanks those that are tuned in on Float, float float.app and DLive, which are some alternative ways to get this content that aren't under the control of big tech, which again, we'll be talking about here shortly. But without further ado, let's bring our guest for today, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, John. Excellent. I appreciate you taking the time um, to chat with us and to help myself and our listeners get a better understanding of what's really going on uh, right now. It's a crazy world we're living in, and there's so much division and tension and a lack of respect for alternative viewpoints. So I appreciate you coming on so we can help uh, help illuminate some of the stuff taking place today. 
Um, why don't we start with a little bit about your background? You are a doctor, a medical doctor. I also understand you're a psychiatrist. Can you just share a little bit about uh, your background and some of your credentials? Yeah, sure. Um, I've actually done uh, quite a number of things. And, uh, you know, in looking back, I think uh, a lot of these things have really helped me understand uh, the current situation. So, for example, uh, when I was in school, I did a lot of uh, research in molecular biology, including running PCR uh, experiments. And um, I worked for the health department right after college reporting AIDS cases uh, in a CDC-sponsored position. So, it allowed me to see what it's like actually going out into the field and collecting data to provide statistics to the government about you know the cause of death or how many cases of this or that. Okay. Um, and then I went into medicine. At first, I was a physician assistant, and I worked in cancer medicine and bone marrow transplant. So I got a unique look into uh, what it's like with really sick people in the hospital. And then when I went to medical school, I ended up specializing in forensic psychiatry. And I think the forensic aspect uh, was really helpful in the current situation because essentially what you do there is you look through a lot of information and you find what is relevant to answer a specific question. And it's a little bit like detective work, Um, but you're often answering questions that are very challenging. So it's hard to find evidence that actually proves the point and you get a really strong feeling Uh, for those kind of connections. And then I also uh, did my own research um, and uh, including, you know, publishing some scientific studies. So I know how the peer review system works. I know, I understand statistics and mathematics that would uh, be used to interpret a lot of these studies. And so combining all that knowledge really helped me uh, look at the current situation and be able to interpret uh, the scientific evidence and, and uncover the truth about what's going on. Right on. And can you tell us a little bit about your work um, in the psychiatry field? I caught the interview that you did with my good friend, Derek Bros of the Conscious Resistance. We're also streaming on the Conscious Resistance Facebook page right now. His YouTube channel was taken down, um, of course. But uh, I I caught that you originally were operating under the pharmaceutical allopathic paradigm, but you began to have some insights and discoveries that shifted your perspective when it comes to natural medicine versus the reactionary medicine. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, of course, if you're going to go to medical school and become a doctor, the only thing they teach you is the allopathic model uh, using, you know, pharmaceutical surgery and radiation therapy is really essentially the only treatments. And so I use this model, you know, uh, when I worked in cancer medicine and when I worked in psychiatry, uh, although I did specifically want to learn psychotherapy because I knew that that was uh, potentially a powerful technique. Um, but what I observed is overall the experience that I had working with hundreds and even thousands of patients is that people with rare exceptions did not get better at all uh, from those pharmaceutical treatments. And this led me to uh, a book by Kelly Brogan um, called The Mind of Your Own. And in it, she had the same criticisms of psychiatric medications that I had from really reading the scientific literature and from our personal experience. And then she had developed a nutritional protocol, which was something different than I had uh, ever seen before. And it was based upon the work of Nicholas Gonzalez, who had uh, much success treating cancer patients. And so I had the opportunity to try this out with like a friend who was struggling with anxiety and we both did it together. 
And it was the first time I'd ever worked with a psychiatric patient um, who I could say was cured of their problem. And so it was a huge eye-opener, and it led me to um, really three years of researching uh, natural health to find out uh, what I could to see, you know, what are the real possibilities outside of the allopathic model uh, for healing. And, you know, what I found is that people could heal from almost any condition, including all of the ones that were told are incurable. Wow. That must have been a pretty big moment for you. Um, rewarding as well. It just seems like the whole allopathic model is this reactionary system where you just get caught in this trap and everything that like the problem is the solution is the problem and the problem is the solution and you never really heal. It's not about healing. It's about the comeback. It's about continuously yes. being dependent on that whole world. You mentioned diet. What? So can you talk a little bit more about how diet really plays a role in our health and our body's ability to heal itself, both mentally and physically? Absolutely. Well, um, you know, there is a strong psychological and spiritual relationship to the physical body. And I think it's important that you uh, brought that up. But in, in terms of nutrition, there's really two different things that are related to disease or illness. And one of those is not getting enough of the right nutrients. Um, and this is uh, unfortunately a very common problem uh, because of our modern food system and agricultural system. The food so, pyramid, it's totally black. <laughs> Do the well, opposite. Even, even disregarding the food pyramid, just how we produce food. Mm -hmm. So for example, and there are all these trace minerals that we use in our body, uh, some like over 50 uh, different minerals. And they're, they're essentially metals that we need in very, very tiny amounts. And you could think of like iron as a common example that we know we need iron to bind the oxygen in our blood and iron binds this, um, you know, hemoglobin molecule, right? Which is a protein and we need the iron. So there's, you know, 50 other metals that we also need in very, very small amounts for similar purposes. And these have, were all present, you know, in the soil and in the plants that we were eating throughout time. And we would eat in our local area and then our waste would go back into the soil. And so the minerals would be recycled. But what we started doing was growing food and then taking it away from that place and, you know, bringing it across the country. Right. Like, you know, uh, much of our produce comes from California uh, these days. Right. Um, so they took that food, which had the minerals from the soil in it and then moved it far away so that it would never go back into the soil. And so after about three growing seasons of doing this, you pretty much depleted those trace minerals. So we've been eating food devoid of these minerals, you know, for a long time. And it's really almost impossible to get them, um, you know, unless you pay close attention and grow your own food. So, um, so a lot of people can be, end up deficient and then it can cause uh, various types of problems. And then the other way that, that nutrition can really affect um, your health is through basically eating things that are not really food, but that are in fact poison. Yeah. And some of these things are added to the food, uh, such as herbicides and pesticides like uh, glyphosate. Um, and some of them are actually uh, chemicals that are, you know, formulated to make the food taste a certain way or to homogenize the ingredients or, you know, something like that. And uh, a lot of them are, are based on corn and soy, um, but these and, and then preservatives and things like that. And these are not really food. They're chemicals that are added to the food for other purposes, but they can have serious health consequences. 
Yeah, and interestingly enough, I'm a big uh, researcher of the conspiratorial view of history, and it, a lot of the treachery comes back to the the damn Rockefellers and the Rockefeller Foundation. It was actually the Rockefeller Foundation. Not only did they put forward allopathic and Western medicine in the United States and essentially killed the emphasis on natural medicine with the Flexner report, I think it was, but yes. they're also responsible for the advent of monocropping and they sold it to the public as though it's going to help, you know, third world countries and fend off starvation. But in reality, it created an environment where the soil has been bastardized and depleted to the point where everyone seems to be unhealthy these days. And if you're a farmer or doing permaculture, you know, it takes a lot of work to get that soil back to the point where it's churning out the the minerals and the nutrients that it's supposed to. So thank you for for uh, for bringing that up, because that's extremely important. The soil. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Zach Bush? Uh, yes, yes. I, uh, I've heard Zach uh, give several interviews and I, he makes a very many important points about this. And I'm also glad that you brought up about Rockefeller Medicine because I actually uh, collaborated with uh, Steve Falconer uh, from uh, Space Busters on a film on that uh, called uh, Hippocratic uh, Hypocrisy. Right. And uh, we talk about how um, Rockefeller Medicine infiltrated uh, healthcare in the United States. And, you know, few people know that the predominant uh, type of doctor that used to be in this uh, country were always naturopaths and homeopaths, mm -hmm. um, as well as chiropractors and osteopaths. And um, that totally was uh, changed and transformed through that Flexter report, which essentially took over the medical education system and converted all of the accredited schools to the allopathic model. Yeah, it's quite the scam, and a lot of people aren't familiar with that. And then, like I've said at the onset of the interview, like everything's been flipped upside down to where Eastern medicine, allopathic, or not Eastern medicine, naturopathic, homeopathic, chiropractic, you know, it, it's seen as quackery by a lot of people, and it's not FDA approved, and we don't even want to go there. But at the same time, all of those people that see it that way are like pumping their body full of all sorts of harmful chemicals that are killing people and causing all sorts of addiction and the opioid crisis and all that stuff. It's it's nuts. So it's good that we have voices of reason like yourself that are out there putting this out. Um, before we even get to covid, uh, I wanted to like kind of set a framework of where the paradigm that you're operating from. And I'd like for you to help us gain a better understanding of germ theory and some of the flaws that you see in this school of thought and perhaps compare it to uh, terrain theory. And there's this image that I always see online and maybe you can kind of, you can see this as well. Can you kind of riff on, on what this is? Is this an accurate <laughs> depiction of, of the difference between the two? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with, uh, with some humor, that is a pretty accurate and uh, depiction. And, you know, what we have here is that uh, germ theory is really related to that uh, Rockefeller model that we were talking about, of allopathic mm. medicine. And it also comes out of uh, materialism. But what it essentially says is that there is an agent of disease, right? That is some kind of microorganism that we can't see. And it comes from outside of our body, invades us and cause, makes us sick. Mm -hmm. So the corollaries of that are really important because if one is it's invisible, we can't see it, right? So in other words, we have to rely on faith that it actually is there. 
And then the other part is that we really have no control over it, right? It comes and invades us. And no matter what we do, we can be susceptible to that. And that's why right, right now you see people walking around afraid that something invisible in the air is going to come invade their body and make them sick. So, so you have to rely on someone who knows how to cure that right, in order to return to a well state. And that would be, you know, someone with a white coat who has a, a magic potion, which is a pharmaceutical. So because of that uh, model, that, that has really been pervasive throughout the medical model. And it's based on a misunderstanding. So what happened is, is after they microscopes were invented and uh, scientists started looking at microorganisms because they could see bacteria and fungi and amoeba and you know other small creatures under the microscope, a regular light microscope, they noticed that they saw bacteria sometimes at the site of disease in a person. So for example, you know, someone had a sore throat and they took a scraping of the throat and then they saw under the microscope bacteria. But from this association, they um, posited that the bacteria actually caused the illness. Now this would be akin to going around uh, to a house fire and noticing that there were firefighters present at the house fire and saying that they caused the fire, hmm. right? Um, so we don't really know the role. We just know that there's an association. Now, they, they devised um, a set of postulates called Koch's postulates from okay. uh, Robert Koch is the one who wrote them down. They had actually preexisted. And it basically said, well, in order to prove that this germ causes the illness, what you need to do is be able to find this germ in someone with the illness uh, and then purify it. So you just have the germ by itself. And in bacteria, they say grow it in a pure culture, but that just multiplies the one species. So it's the same as having it by itself. And then you take that germ or bacteria, and then you put it in a healthy host, and it would cause the same disease in the host. And then you could also purify it or separate it out from that diseased host. And if you can do an experiment, experiments that show that, then you've proven that the bacteria causes the disease. But the thing is that those experiments were never satisfied. They, uh, Louis Pasteur had claimed to satisfy some of those experiments, but it turned out later on that those were fraudulent claims um, based on when his diaries were later released. Hmm. So there's really no experiments that I'm aware of where they've ever proven this uh, causation between a germ and an illness. And so that slide that you showed with the two goldfish bowls uh, would, you know, show the d dirty water on the left-hand side, which means, you know, there are toxins in the terrain or in the body, right? Because they didn't change the water. So the fish's waste accumulated, um, you know, in the bowl. And now uh, it's filled with waste products, right? And that's what made it sick. Um, but they're saying that a germ made it sick, uh, right, instead. So it's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, but but it kind of gets the point across. So so terrain. So so one thing that's really important is that whatever is the correct theory of disease, um, it's not germ theory because the experiments that were done and there were many many attempts just did not confirm that germ theory was really scientific. And and that's why it's still called a theory, right? It's not called the law of germs 
or the law of infection. Mm. Uh, because, you know, when, when a theory is proposed, it has to then um, be subjected to experimentation and the evidence has to confirm the theory. And and the way science really works is you're, you're supposed to do experiments to try to disprove the theory. And then if you're unable to disprove it with everything you can think of, then it becomes a law. And you say, okay, you know, until something else comes along, we adopt this. Germ theory has been treated as a law because all of medicine and medical research has been based upon it, but the primary evidence for it never existed. So it, it really makes a difficult situation because by the time we came into existence, you know, in our generation or, or anyone alive right now, from day one, when they were born, germ theory was already the accepted dogma. And, you know, I never looked at the prima facie evidence to support it because, you know, why would I? It's generally widely accepted and it seems to be, you know, uh, seems to be correct. Hmm. But when you do go look for the evidence, you see that it's uh, there's really nothing uh, whatsoever behind it. Um, and then you dive deeper and reinterpret things that you've observed later in your life, like when people seem to get sick together. And you can easily see that, oh, there, there could be many other ways to explain that. Mm. So terrain theory is another theory that's sort of really the complement of germ theory. And it it actually came out of evidence. So it wasn't um, an idea that was had so much as there were observations of experiments that occurred that led to developing this. And it was particularly um, from a scientist named Antoine Béchamp. And he was a French uh, scientist, very accomplished. And actually Pasteur copied several of his experiments and plagiarized some of his material, um, which led to uh, some of his fame. But uh, Béchamp showed that basically the microorganisms don't have to come from outside. They, they come from inside. So in other words, like um, they were studying fermentation a lot where, you know, the way you make beer, where microorganisms turn, um, you know, plant material sugars into something else, right? Alcohol or, or converted sugar or through fermentation. And they did these experiments first showing that the microorganism had to come from the air. But later on, they showed that if they put it in a vacuum with no air, that still the material decomposed. And then later on, Béchamp saw evidence of microorganisms actually coming out of animal cells hmm. um, with these little particles he called somatids. And this was really the birth of the terrain theory. And what the terrain theory says is that illness is caused by something that damages our physical body, like the terrain of our body, the ecosystem of our body. Right. So like, for example, a poison or a nutritional deficit where the body can't repair something. And then in response to that damage, um, the body sends out microorganisms, right, like the ones that we're familiar with that are in the gut mm -hmm. um, to the site where the damage is to try and help clean it up. So any damaged tissue that's there, the bacteria eat that up and get rid of it. And that actually allows our body to heal properly. And so this is what really what terrain theory is about. And I didn't really know about this formal terrain theory at first when I started doing natural healing, because what happened was I was just really looking at other people who had successful ways of treating certain health conditions. And, and then I tried some of these things myself, and then I 
talked about them with some other people and they tried them and had success. And once I realized what was successful and how it worked, that's when I heard about terrain theory. And I, I said to him, I had this realization. I said, oh my gosh, the things that I know are successful in healing are actually m compatible with, with what terrain theory says. And it's essentially supporting that healing process um, that I'm talking about that your body goes through. So this is uh, really the perspective that I'm coming from and why I feel, uh, you know, terrain theory is a very, very promising model. Yeah, it seems as though one is a state of impotence, the germ theory, like you're powerless to respond to it. You're powerless to overcome it without, as you said, the help of a lab coat or of petrochemical pharmaceutical medicine brought to us by the Rockefellers. And on the, the opposite side, the terrain theory is that you can take proactive steps eliminating toxins, eliminating uh, terrible genetically modified food and all sorts of chemicals and uh, pesticides and increasing the intake of trace minerals, vitamins, supplements, nutrients that the body needs to thrive. Um, and you can take control of your health. And it seems as though there's a conspiracy by the medical world to uh, weaken people to take their power away to heal themselves. And I recall the very first time that I healed a serious uh, lung infection. I don't even know what it was never diagnosed, but it was really painful. And my I it hurt when I coughed, I was laying down, I couldn't even lift my body up off a couch. And so my naturopath, this is early on when I started working with this guy, amazing doctor in Austin, Dr. Matthew Buckley. He's like, you got to get a nebulizer. You don't. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the man. He's, he's a great guy. He's an extremist, too, like like we are, um, you know, extremely on point, I should say. But he was like, you got to get a nebulizer, some colloidal silver, a little food grade hydrogen peroxide. And this was my first experience, not going to the doctor, not relying on whatever. And when it I nebulized and it cleared up all of the pain in like an hour. And I felt so empowered that I did that on my own using natural, non-conventional substances. You know, they really are the traditional ones, even though they're not conventional now. And that was just a moment of like, wow, I can be the master of my body without needing any external authority to tell me what to do or to intervene. And I think that that little secret there, the more that it gets out, the more power people are going to have and the less power the establishment is going to have. So kudos to you for sharing all this. And I've noticed just in you, in you explaining your evolution as a doctor, you, there have been many times where you departed away from the conventional wisdom. And I think one of the challenges that we face as humankind, and I lay a lot of the blame at public schools and the media these days is that people seem to be incapable of going against the prevailing wisdom and narrative, especially in the age of COVID. And we all need to constantly question ourselves and even question our thing. Like there's a lot of folks in the conspiracy research and alternative medicine field that think they know it all right. But it's important to, to understand that we're constantly learning and to never stop learning, right? Because that's when that's when we become ignorant of the world around us. So I'm glad that your 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 progression and your evolution has had that because you wouldn't be where you are today if if you weren't willing to challenge what it was that you believed in the first place. So right. for well, everybody John, you know, uh, for no, me, 
uh, for me, um, you know, pursuing uh, the understanding of, of truth is really um, a spiritual journey. And it's what is uh, necessary, in my opinion, you know, to develop the self and improve. Because if you are making decisions in your life based on falsehoods, then you're being misdirected and you're not um, moving towards a, a higher status, which is, you know, my aim. And so in order to be of that perspective, you have to be open to always changing your opinion about what you think the truth is. Mm -hmm. And also acknowledging that you may never, you know, I firmly believe that there is a such thing as absolute truth in the universe. Um, but I realize that I may never have a, a full understanding of that absolute truth. And my pursuit is to try and get closer and closer to it. Mm -hmm. So I have to be open to when I receive new information, if it doesn't agree with what I believe is true at that time, right, I have to be willing to change that and evolve on a continuing basis. Yeah. And I make mistakes just like anyone else. And, you know, that's why this whole skill of discernment or judgment, being able to um, take information that you come across and say, well, is this correct? Is it mm -hmm. internally consistent? Um, and, you know, do I trust it? Yeah. And, and this is a, you know, an, an evolutionary process. So, um, you know, I think that all the listeners out there are, are all capable of doing this as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so one simple thing is just to try and with respect to this situation, go to the source material, don't rely on any media or journalists unless you, you know, have already vetted them really carefully by comparing what they say to the source material, because over and over again, I find that even, among uh, people that seem trustworthy in this alternative space, um, sometimes they're not always super careful. Mm -hmm. And so you always have to look at the scientific paper, the government website, the statistic, the quotation, whatever it is, and, and make sure, you know, that it's valid. And before you uh, take that in and, and make it part of your, uh, you know, opinion or your, uh, your, your structure of truth. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, the The Buddha called it beginner's mind and always being able to just take it back to the beginning and, and to challenge your own core beliefs. And I think it's it's absolutely critical, especially for, for everyone in this field, especially when the odds seem to be stacked against us. So speaking of, uh, you know, overcoming sacred truths and or sacred cows, I should say. Let, let's go ahead and get into COVID. We have about 30 minutes left with you, and that is the big topic on everyone's mind these days. COVID-19, it's everywhere. It's all around you. Your families are all infected. Don't go to Christmas Christmas dinner. You're going to kill grandma kind of deal. Let's, uh, Like you said, let's go to the primary source material. And I, I've seen some of your interviews and in, in your talks, and you like to really hash out what took place there in, in Wuhan and how some assumptions were made. And the world seemed to just take those assumptions and run with them, never looking back. And now there's this environment where the media and everyone's just so worked up into a frenzy. If you challenge the prevailing narrative, then you're seen as selfish and everyone just points a finger at you. It's absolutely disgusting, in my opinion. But uh, let's go ahead and start back in, in Wuhan. And um, if you could share your perspective on how this all came about and maybe some of the things that were missing that actually are pretty critical for the story. Yeah. Well, you know, in my opinion, um, the way this all came about was through planning. But but what you can observe happened, you know, in Wuhan was that uh, a small number of people got sick and they said that there was a commonality that they went to this 
um, outdoor food market. But what happened is that they, you know, they gave those people a small number of people, I think something like 30 people, they gave them antibiotics, right, to treat bacterial pneumonia because they had some kind of pneumonia and they didn't get better. So they just assumed it was a virus and they collected some samples of lung fluid from just a few of those patients, like less than 10 of them. Okay. And then from only a couple of them, they were able to do an experiment, which they call a virus isolation experiment. But this is a, a misnomer because what, when they say isolation, they don't, they don't mean the English definition. They mean some strange thing, um, which I would call a, um, a toxic culture experiment. Okay. Okay. So they, they take some lung fluid from a sick person with an unknown illness, never been characterized before they say, although it's just basically pneumonia. And then they mix that fluid with foreign cells. Okay. Like, and sometimes they use lung cancer cells in one of the experiments, but mostly they use monkey kidney cells. And these monkey kidney cells have already been starved so they'd be giving what's called minimal medium. So it's like just basically like a bread and water diet. And then they added several toxic chemicals uh, to those cells, like antibiotics that are specifically toxic to kidney cells um, and, and calf serum, which is a blood product from fetal cows that would be cause an allergic reaction if it were given to us. And so they grow this culture. And then after several days, the cells in the culture, the kidney cells from the monkey, they start to die because they're in this toxic soup. And when cells die, they throw off different kinds of particles. Like essentially what happens is the membrane pinches off into little particles. And some of these are what are called exosomes, which package information that would be sent to another part of your body. Like for example, the kidney might say we're under toxic assault from antibiotics and send out a message to the liver, say liver, hurry up and get, get rid of these antibiotics from the, from our body. Right. And that would be contained in this little uh, vesicle um, called an exosome. Um, but there'd be other types of little particles that come off these dying cells, like tons of them. And all they do is they look under a microscope and they look through all these particles and they pick one and they say, ah, there, that's the virus. But how do they know? That's what it is. <laughs> because um, there's nothing specific about it. They didn't do like a special, you know, stain that only lights up on viruses that they previously characterized or something like that. They just looking at the shape and say that one looks like a virus. But it really doesn't prove anything because if you look at all these particles, you see that whether it's a virus or an exosome or another particle that they look exactly the same and there's no way to tell. Um, so that's essentially the proof that they give that there is even a virus at all. Okay. And that's, and even if, even if that did prove that there was a virus, it doesn't prove that it causes any illness because they didn't do an experiment to prove that it does. So when I uncovered this, I was just really astonished because essentially the experiment that they performed couldn't possibly show the presence of a new virus because they, they didn't actually do a procedure where you could just have a virus and hold it in your hand and say, okay, here it is, right? And if you want to discover anything new anywhere, any type of thing, a new mineral, a new planet, right? You have to be able to say, 
look, here it is. I have it in my possession. And it, without that, how do you know that it actually exists? Hmm. Let me interrupt you real quick. Have other viruses been isolated properly, like HIV or other viruses in the past? Yeah, well, so if you look back to the uh, earliest um, uh, experiments in virus-related uh, research, they saw these structures in bacteria and in other single-celled organisms like algae. Um, that are, are called viruses. And they're, they're said to be the same thing as viruses in animals that cause disease. And in bacteria, they're called bacteriophages. And hundreds of bacteriophages have been characterized. And what they do with those experiments is they are able to basically purify those virus particles separate from the bacteria. Hmm. And they do this by a simple procedure uh, called ultracentrifugation. A centrifuge, right, is just a spinning uh, thing where you put a test tube in. And so they can show in a, under a microscope where you have nothing but bacteriophages. Okay. Um, and they also can do this with exosomes, interestingly. Exosomes are little virus-like particles that our own cells make, like I explained before, in response to something uh, going on in your body that needs communication. And those particles, the same, they're the same size. They, ha they also have genetic material. They also have receptors, like virtually every property that they say viruses have, exosomes have. And they can easily do experiments where they purify exosomes out of our blood or body fluids. So they have the, the experimental techniques. And in fact, these techniques are, are old. They're not high tech. Um, the centrifuges have been around for a, quite a long time and, uh, they could do this experiment on viruses that they say cause diseases, but they don't. Um, and when they used to try to do those experiments back in the forties and early fifties, they were never able to actually find a virus that they could isolate. Hmm. So essentially they made up this new experiment, um, which they call isolation, but, it, it's a bogus experiment, and they've used this experiment ever since 1954 as the prima facie evidence for the existence of all the viruses that they say cause disease in humans. Mm. And this this is one of those, like we were just talking about, the prevailing wisdom is just commonly accepted, and then the people that challenge it or ask tough questions about it are seen as the crazy kooks that need to be censored. I just want to point out, too, you earlier said go to source material, so... Here uh, for the for the podcast audience, I have this document that's a CDC document. It's on the FDA.gov website. It's titled CDC 2019 Novel Coronavirus Real-Time RT-PCR Diagnostic Panel. And on this document, they go so far as to say, since no quantified virus isolates of the 2019 in-cove were available for CDC use at the time the test was developed and this study was conducted, Assays designed for detection of the 2019 in-cove RNA were tested with characterized stocks of in vitro transcribed full-length RNA. Um, can you describe exactly what that means? Because what I'm picking up, just in layman's terms, a non-expert, um, is that this is the CDC admitting that they do not have an isolated SARS-CoV-2 virus to, um, to study, to examine, to use as the gold standard, as you've referred to in other, in other interviews. Is that, is that accurate? 
Yeah. So, well, yeah, this is a very important uh, document, and I think it, it it has been somewhat misinterpreted by many people. So it doesn't mean that there the virus has never been isolated because it doesn't say that. That okay. is true. <laughs> um, but but this document doesn't give proof of that. But what it does say is that they developed this test, the PCR test, so-called PCR test, which is being used as the diagnostic test, even though even the FDA says that it's not for that purpose. Um, but it said that they developed this test without actually having the thing that they were testing. Right. So, so, you know, just to break this down in general terms, how do you develop a test for something when you don't have the something that you're testing for available? It does. It really uh, is not a way to develop a test, mm. right? If you want to have a, um, you know, a test that measures the presence of carbon dioxide, right? When you're developing the test, you need to have carbon dioxide available. <laughs> yep. Okay. You can't have a synthetic, um, you know, uh, a substitute of carbon dioxide. It has to be the real thing. So with this test, what they did is that they, they never actually had a virus in their hand where they could pull out the genes and sequence them. So there's no genome sequence that's been made by by that actual real way. The, the way that they made this genome sequence is that they took thousands and thousands of little fragments of RNA that they don't know where they were from because they got them from lung fluid. So they, they could be from hundreds of different organisms. And they had a computer piece those together into one long strand and fill in the gaps and use all kinds of uh, tricks and shortcuts. And that's where they get the, these gene sequences. So they say that they took that theoretical computer sequence and then they actually used a DNA synthesizing machine or RNA synthesizing machine and made that sequence. They programmed it in like on the computer and then that you know, ran for a couple of days and pumped out the sequence. Mm. And then they, they formulated that in different concentrations and test tubes and used that to calibrate the test. Wow. Sounds like junk science to me. It's, uh, it's so far removed from from reality uh, that it's ridiculous because if we have, you know, supposedly this virus has affected millions worldwide, right? So wouldn't it be really easy to pull out fluid, body fluid from, you know, a few thousand people and, uh, you know, run it through a centrifuge and have just tons of, of virus particles available that they could use to develop tests for other research, et cetera? Yeah, you would think. That'd be super easy. But if there actually is no virus, then it's impossible to do that. Hmm. So we're back in Wuhan and they're speculating that this is a viral transmission that's taking place. Was it the Chinese government that originally said we have this new novel coronavirus? And then can you talk about the origins of the PCR test? Who came up with it? Because it seems like once we had this test, then it was like, all right, it's everywhere. This is a huge yeah. deal. That's what created the pandemic, essentially. Well, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure that the Chinese authorities uh, reported uh, this, you know, illness to some agency, and that's how it became uh, an international effort. But I do know a little bit about the story of how the PCR test was first developed. And, okay. you know, they did the same kind of experiments back in 2003 with the so-called SARS-CoV-1 virus, which they said caused a SARS outbreak back then, right, which was a severe respiratory illness. They said it had a very high mortality rate, like 11%. 
And they did the same uh, bogus experiments uh, in that situation and came up with this other bogus virus, SARS-CoV-1. And they did the same theoretical computer model of a genome back then. And so what happened is once there were some cases of a suspected virus in Wuhan, this scientist in Germany, Drosten, got wind of it somehow and basically used the sequences from that 2003 virus that were theoretical and developed primers for a PCR test. And without even having the sequences from this new alleged virus even, just based on this one from 2003 that supposedly was somewhat related. Um, you know, ultimately they said it had like an 80% identity, okay, which is, you know, between us and chimpanzees is 98% identity. So that's not very identical. And so basically the test, the, using the PCR, which is not meant to be used as a diagnostic test, it's actually a manufacturing procedure, but, but it's been corrupted in this way. And so the test specifically for COVID was first developed based on sequences from a totally different virus from a totally different outbreak almost 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's bogus and it's being used. It's turned into a case-demic um, and that's what's being used to cause so much fear and perpetuate all of this nonsense and, of course, usher in a great reset, which we talk about a lot on this program so let me ask you this. It's always been I saw early on that assuming that there is a problem here, uh, the, a pandemic or a mini pandemic or whatever. If we operate under that assumption, it would seem that what's more important than the cases would be hospitalizations and deaths. And so I want to well, ask you. Let me interrupt you for a second, because if you're operating under the assumption of a pandemic, you're not really paying attention to what's going on around you, because if you were seeing all your friends and family dying, well, then that, then you'd say, okay, we have a pandemic. Yeah. Like in 1918. Yeah. And that's what would happen in, in a situation like that. But you know, okay. So everybody can maybe name somebody with uh, two degrees of separation who died in a nursing home or who was yeah. old and sick who died, but that, that the same thing would have been true two years ago. Right. So so there's no evidence of a pandemic. Now, maybe there's evidence of something, <laughs> but, it, but it definitely doesn't rise anywhere close to that level. A pandemic means a worldwide illness that that causes a significant increase in mortality. Mm -hmm. and we would have to observe that with our own eyes, not by listening to fake numbers on the TV, but we would be able to see it because it would be everywhere around us. Okay, well, so this interview itself is challenging some of the way that I've been communicating because a lot of my stuff, I talk about the virus and everyone in the comments is like, you fool, there is no virus. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on, come on now. So here's the things that I'm still holding on to. Maybe you can help me better understand. Um, they talk a lot about the excess, the hospitalizations reaching capacity, right? I knew that that was a fraud here in Travis County, Austin, where I live, because the hospitals weren't at capacity. And they would say that the hospitals are pushing 80% capacity. And I went and did some research and found that the private hospitals in Austin, they prefer to have almost full capacity so they can make money, much like a hospital doesn't want to have 20% of the rooms unoccupied or 40% of the rooms unoccupied. And it turns out that even 80%, 85%, 90% isn't some crisis situation. Now, I will say, however, down in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, 
I, I can ascertain when it's bogus and they're like using Italian stock footage, but it does appear that they are bringing in doctors from other areas in Texas to help what's taking place in Rio Grande. So I'd like your thoughts on documented footage or evidence of hospitals, like more people being sick. And then also I'd like to touch on the CDC's excess deaths. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, this is uh, an area that's quite humorous because, you know, if you've worked in hospitals, right, like so, you know, in my medical career, I've worked in many hospitals. I've worked at academic hospitals, private community hospitals, rural hospitals, uh, tertiary care centers, all those kinds of things. And throughout my entire career, I've never seen a hospital that wasn't full. Um, so 80 percent capacity, that's actually that's actually uh under, you know, that's lower than normal, not higher than normal. So I've been in situations where people have been stuck in the emergency department for like two weeks waiting for a bed. Um, and this had nothing to do with the pandemic. This was just just poor management or hospital system was overwhelmed. Seasons. Yeah, it could be, it could be a, a variety of things. I mean, I don't, I think that our hospital system, the hospitals want to run at capacity as much as possible because that's how they make money. Like, like you, I mean, they're, they're a for-profit businesses, hospitals, Mm -hmm. right? Even, even the public ones have strong incentives to run or they're just, they're overwhelmed because they serve a larger, you know, community and they're always full, but it's always been the case that when I tried to admit a patient to the hospital, I had to wait, Mm -hmm. like there was not a bed available or I had to call multiple hospitals to find an available bed, right? That's whether I've been, whether it's been psychiatric or medical it's always been that way. So, so this thing um, going on now can be very misleading if you don't know what the normal operation of the business is. Uh, but what we've had since the pandemic is we've had empty hospitals, which is just unheard of. I've never, ever seen it in my career. Um, and, you know, all around the country, empty hospitals, around the world, actually, so much mm-hmm. documentation of that. Like I've talked to people who have gone inside like one parent uh, whose child had a sports accident and they thought they had a broken bone and they had to actually really uh, convince them to even let them in to get an x-ray and they walked through the hospital and and it was like the lights were off there was no one there they were the only person in the radiology department and I'll tell you if you're in a hospital like it's really expensive to buy the equipment to do x-rays and MRIs and cat scans and you you run that equipment, 24 seven as much as possible. Right. And so to see an empty radiology department, and this was in a big city, it wasn't in the United States, but it was a big city in a Western country. So if you have one hospital here or there that might be busy, it could be because all the surrounding hospitals are sending all the patients of a certain type to that hospital. Um, as a center, like they did this in New York City with Elmhurst Hospital, which is a very, very small hospital compared to all these big hospitals in New York City. And they I think they sent all the patients there to make it look like it was overrun. And then the other hospitals were empty. Okay. at the same time. And I saw footage because there were citizen journalists that went to the other hospitals and showed the empty lobbies and waiting rooms and ERs. I remember that. Uh, So I don't know if that's going on in Rio Grande Hospital, but that would be something I would look at because I'm still getting reports from people who work in healthcare that their hospitals are are essentially empty. Right on. And it also could be like 
there's the natural flow of when people go to the hospital for something or they have a lump and they suspect cancer or whatever, that's been interrupted by the lockdowns. And there were a lot of people that genuinely needed care. And because they weren't able to have, it was only emergency procedures, which, uh, you know, if you don't get care in some instances, it becomes an emergency. Right. Um, it could be like people weren't going, they put it off till the end. And then a lot of people started going at the same time. And there's all these, um, indirect negative consequences that are yes. coming as a result of this depression, losing your job, losing your right. business, losing your housing, becoming dependent on government, which I think is a lot of the big play here. The, okay. So then what do you make of the CDC excess deaths? I know there was a new England journal of medicine. I think it was new England journal of medicine. They, they put out somebody, a student put out this thing kind of debunking that and they quickly covered it up just like the world health organization was like, there's yes. actually not a lot of evidence of asymptomatic transmission of the virus. And then the next day we're like, we, didn't mean that sorry disregard that and they do like their men in black little memory eraser yeah, thing yeah. but uh what are you, what's your take on the excess deaths because if we take the cdc prima facie right on the surface it looks like there actually are more deaths right now how do you explain that yeah sure um i've, I've looked into this a little bit and, and let me you know also say on that other issue um you know that absolutely is the is the truth there as well but with this um excess death issue so what what happened recently it wasn't a student it was actually uh, a, a professor of economics uh in charge of a master's degree program and this woman is actually it was uh, a johns johns hopkins, somebody johns hopkins yeah, her name is genevieve okay. briand b-r-i-a-n-d and she put out a powerpoint presentation on YouTube, and it was actually on the Johns Hopkins, one of their channels. And she basically analyzed the mortality data um, and compared it to prior years. And she showed quite, quite correctly, um, and I've talked about this before, that essentially there's no excess mortality. But what you did have was a change in how the mortality played out such that deaths were relabeled um, as being due to COVID-19 instead of due to all the other causes. Because, you know, what you were getting at before about hospitals and people being ill is there's always every year a seasonal pattern. When the humidity and the temperatures drop in the fall and winter, more people die, but they don't just die of seasonal illness. They actually die of all causes. So in other words, there are more people who die of heart attacks during those months than in the summer as well as more people dying of pneumonia um, in those months. And what, according to Dr. Brian's analysis, uh, which is correct, basically, and she showed this mathematically, that they substituted all the other causes of death for COVID-19 in 2020, making it look like you had this large number of deaths due to COVID. Now, when you look at the CDC's analysis, they have a table where they present the raw data for for 2020, in other words, the number of deaths by week. And that's what Dr. Brianne used, by the way. She got her data from the CDC. But Dr. Brianne actually compared the data to prior years directly, okay? And most uh, to from 2014 up to the present. And right. you know the numbers were exactly the same as 2018. And that, that's still true. You can compare those numbers directly. But what when the CDC has their number percentage of expected deaths, right, in their table. Now, what they're doing is they're not directly comparing it to prior years. What they're doing is they made a statistical model that uses in the data from prior years plus other factors. Mm. So in other words, they can tune the statistical model to go one way or the other. 
And when you compare it directly to the prior years, you see it's not the same. But when you compare it to their statistical model, what they did is they under um, estimated the expected deaths in 2020. So it looked like there was an excess. But their model, I believe, has been tweaked for that purpose. And so I would just throw it out because you, you definitely can't go wrong if you compare the numbers to the actual numbers from the prior years. And if you just compare to 2020 and 2018, you'll see that there's no difference in the number of deaths. Uh, yet in 2018, we had no pandemic. Okay. And um, one thing that this all reminds me of is the parallels between what took place on 9-11 uh, with the collapse of the buildings. So I'm just a full-fledged you know, conspiracy researcher, although I don't go down the Q rabbit hole and all that stuff. Um, but what they did, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, they created all of these models. And yes. they, whenever the outcome of their scientific air quotes for the podcast audience, their scientific model didn't match what actually took place in reality, the buildings crashing down on themselves – they simply changed the variables. They made it as though the fires were more extreme, as though the damage from the plane was more extreme, as though the steel was more easily weakened. And they changed the model and the variables so that it would fit their desirable outcome. And it sounds like this is what's been taking place, not only with the genomic structure, they the sequence to fill in the holes. They wanted to create this something to identify and spread with this PCR test. But now with the excess deaths, I didn't know that they had other variables and that it's a model that they use. And it seems like that would be easily manipulatable. Um, so the yeah, parallels Josh, there are you, incredible. You really, um, you really brought out such a, a key point in discernment in general, because if you look at all these different areas of policy and research and dogma, um, you'll see mathematical computer models being inserted, mm -hmm. right? We had this with the Imperial College of London. Yeah, the original uh, one that freaked everyone and, out. And that was, remember, that was used to justify the, you know, two-week lockdown, right? And so, and then we have the models, uh, you know, as we just pointed out with the genetic sequencing, which are bogus. Uh, you have the models for, you know, like Building 7, for example, that was, you know, they said that uh, came down from a, a fire, an office fire, right? And we know that office fires never brought down a building like that before in the history. <laughs> mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, you know, even if you look at uh, uh, global warming and climate change, you see the same thing. Computer models are really the only science that shows uh, CO2 causing warming. So <clears throat> I think you can safely say that any conclusion that's based on computer modeling, uh, you should uh, read with a high degree of skepticism at the least. And uh, for me, you know, I pretty much just read it for curiosity uh, to see how it's affecting the narrative and knowing that it's not scientifically valid. And by the way, I, I know this from, from experience because I worked with computer modeling um, for a pharmaceutical company trying to uh, help with drug design. And I saw that how you could easily tweak various different parameters, because when you do this, many things are unknown and you have to give them a value. And depending on what value you give them, you can make the model do what you want pretty much. And I have made things look incredibly good when we know they failed in real life uh, mm -hmm. on the model. So, you know, it, I'm not just saying this because the models don't agree with me, but it, you can just look at what happened after, you know, there weren't 2 million deaths, even by the CDC exaggerations or anywhere close to that, you know, it was off by at least one order of magnitude, a factor of 10. Wow. So that's basically just junk. 
you can just toss it aside. Yeah, and there was a picture of Bill Gates recently with the book How to Lie with Statistics or something like that. And so it's it's obvious. Um, I usually try to wrap these interviews up at an hour, but I'd like to hold you over just a little bit longer because there's a couple things that I think are really important and uh, we're seeing in the comments as well. Do you have another 10 or 15 minutes you could do with me? Uh, yeah, sure. We could go another 10 minutes, I believe. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so let's talk about the other big elephant in the room, the COVID vaccines that are starting to be rolled out. They were approved first in England, in Great Britain, and now they've been approved emergency approval here in the FDA. Can you tell us about the vaccine that's been approved here in the United States and what some of your concerns are? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But let me uh, start off by saying that actually no vaccines have been approved. Okay. Uh, in order to get approval by the FDA or the uh, European or British agencies, you have to do longer term studies. Okay. So, and actually show that they prevent transmission of the illness or, or prevent the illness. And that's not what we have here. What we have here is emergency use authorization. Okay. So it's very different. And, and by the way, yeah, Everything that has been allowed to be done with respect to this uh, so-called pandemic is under that provision. So in other words, the tests, too, that they didn't have to submit data to show the tests are valid uh, in order to be authorized for use. OK, and and uh, and, it, and the FDA has documents, uh, guidance documents that say this. And so let me see if I can pull the one up for the vaccine uh, to give you the exact um, quotation because it, it's quite moving. And so this is what basically the FDA said about why they authorize, authorize the, the Pfizer vaccine. Um, they say, based on the totality, and this is a quote, of scientific evidence available to FDA, it is, quote, reasonable to believe that the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine may be effective in preventing COVID-19. Okay, so in other words, they're hedging it with several different adjectives here. Reasonable to believe, right? <laughs> Not even close to a certainty that it may be effective. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what. So that is n nothing that would ever get approval. Yeah, uh, for anything, right? Because that that is uh, the emergency authorization criteria. Wow. And so all the tests are like that. And then the other important aspect to know about is that the companies making these vaccines have no product liability whatsoever. So they have yeah. complete immunity. In other words, if they, you know, just if they give a, a billion doses of this vaccine and a hundred million people die from it, not one of those people can sue Pfizer or any of the other companies um, because they're, they're immune from this liability uh, mm -hmm. by the governments. Yeah. Okay. So, so we have a situation where we have incomplete data. We have no guarantee that it will actually do what they say. And then we have a very limited um, adverse outcome data because it's only been tested in a very short term. In fact, the trials for the vaccines that are based, that this authorization is based on aren't even complete because they're supposed to go for two years. They're supposed to observe the, you know, research subjects who got the experimental vaccine for two full years to monitor for any longer term side effects. And obviously this hasn't been done. They've only been, you know, a few months that they've been having these trials go on. 
Hmm. So we've got a really crazy situation. So first of all, we have um, not even a clear evidence of a new disease, certainly no proof that that let alone it's caused by a virus, but that a virus even exists at all. Mm -hmm. And then we have a vaccine with a brand new type of technology works different from any other vaccine in the past that's ever been approved and actually has a gene from this virus, but it's not from a virus because they didn't actually sequence the genes. It's from this computer model of a virus. They're putting this gene, they say, and the gene is actually going to go into your cells in your own body and turn in and make virus proteins, they say. So they're going to have your own cells making virus proteins. So this brand new type of vaccine technology that will alter you genetically, never been approved before, now gets authorized in less than a year when it typically takes 10 years to develop any vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, and they have no long-term safety data, right? And there's no liability. So I don't know why anyone in their right mind would even consider taking this vaccine. Um, they, they it would only be if they are basing it on completely false information. Yeah. And well, a lot of people are so damn terrified right now because like, I don't, we don't have TV, but we have on our Netflix smart TV, maybe the smart TV is watching us. We have the little TV plus. And so every once in a while I'll put it on the news and I listen to the radio news in the car and it's, it's pretty clear. There's a pretty hardcore psychological warfare operation taking place with all of the flashy slides and the red. It's always the cumulative deaths and the cumulative cases that are just going through the sky high. But on this interview, you've really challenged some uh, some core beliefs that I think a lot of people share. If you could, um, before we let you go, how do you suggest communicating the, these concerns about the virus or lack thereof and about the vaccine, especially because, you know, staying at home and having your emotional health be destroyed is 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 harmful in and of itself. But, you know, our family members considering, thankfully, my family is not on board with a lot of this, but our family members, people's family members considering taking the virus. What are some of the, you know, some of the stronger points or how would you recommend people share with their family and their loved ones these concerns so they may challenge their own perspective about it and and avoid it altogether? What are some of the big points that you would encourage people to share? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really difficult. And I think um, most of the time people, if they're not receptive to having these discussions, I don't know that there's really much you can do other than plant a seed uh, for the future should they become open. And, you know, I share the concerns that that you have and the viewers have because I don't want people that I care about to end up being hurt from this vaccine. And that's a, a genuine concern. You know, I, I have a lot of people who I'm friends with or have relationships with who still work in healthcare, and they're going to be, you know, encouraged, if not required to submit to this vaccine to keep their jobs. And I don't want to see those people, you know, get hurt uh, from that. So it's very, very challenging. And, uh, you know, I don't think there is really um, any easy way to go about having these discussions. But if you do communicate your concern for the person and that, you know, if that comes across as genuine and that's your reason for sharing the information, I think that's the most important thing. And, um, you know, you've got to kind of be compassionate because, uh, you know, whoever rolls up their sleeve is uh, taking a big risk. Yeah. And no liability on the flip side it says so much right there. 
Wow. Okay. So we have really covered a lot here today and uh, tipped some sacred cows. And I appreciate you sticking with us. I appreciate the first part of the interview too. A lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that we can have power over our bodies. We can be in control of our health and it just takes a, a shift in perspective, shift in habits really is what it's all about. And then, um, like I said at the beginning of the interview, you're a pretty, pretty censored guy when it comes to your perspectives on COVID. So I appreciate you putting it out there. I know that you have nothing to gain. In fact, you have a lot to lose. So I always honor folks that are brave enough to put their reputation, their career on the line to share truth and, and to help people. So I, I want to thank you for that. Thanks a lot, John. I think you're, uh, you're doing the same thing. So uh, it's definitely mutual. Right on, right on. Hey, well, thanks. We'll talk again in the future. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with my audience all, all that you've learned in these crazy times. Keep up the good work. All right, you take care. Thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. That was great, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He was uh, kind enough to let us hold him over. The conversation really was some good information, in my opinion. Let's hope that uh, YouTube doesn't take us down for this or I get don't get banned on Facebook because we're still able to reach people there. But again, I want to remind you, I keep banging on this. Derek Bros was banging on it, too. You got to go to these alternative channels and follow our work there. Derek Bros can be found on library. If you go to theconsciousresistance.com, you can click there, the library link, and it'll take you to his content. He didn't disappear. He's still out there putting out hard-hitting content all the time. Library, bit shoot, float, all of the above. And for me, I strongly invite you to go to livefreenow.show, livefreenow.show. If you appreciate what you've heard here today, don't worry. There's plenty more on all sorts of different topics challenging the status quo and doing it in a nice, chipper, cheerful way uh, so we don't get all overwhelmed and creeped out and freaked out. It's all about solutions, in my opinion. Go to livefreenow.show, livefreenow.show. Sign up for the email newsletter and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Again, this is John Bush. We are living in crazy times, but it's up to us to keep a level head to pursue truth and to not think that we know everything, right? A lot of people feel like, oh, they're the normies and we're the awoken ones and I woke up, quote unquote. It's a never ending process. You never want to stop waking up. You never want to stop challenging not only the prevailing paradigm, but more importantly, challenge your own beliefs because the truth is out there. And if we stop pursuing it because we get arrogant and think we know it all because we're researching online and watching videos all day, then uh, we're really doing ourselves a disservice and we're doing those around us a disservice. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is John Bush reminding you to live free and not be safe. Be safe. That's what everyone says. Be safe. I like to say stay healthy and stay free. Peace. I'm out. Thanks.